This is Charles Cole, two of the eight black hands. We had the distinct pleasure of doing a live show in Las Vegas with an amazing crowd. Um, you might hear a lot of background noise and it might be a little bit of buzzing, but we had an amazing time. I think it was a great conversation. So thanks to everybody that came out and we hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Welcome to the Eight Black Hands Podcast. I am Charles Cole here with our amazing team. Chris said we was going to skip the introduction today and just get into the... Jump in. We about to jump in. Jump in. So in this jumping in, because we don't have a lot of time, but we want to make sure that we get to go deep in this. We were toying with something earlier today, the term that ed reform is dead. And what does that mean for us, for you, for our kids? And what does that statement even mean? It's a lot of stuff happening in the country right now that's affecting our young people. And how we show up is going to be vital to the next 5, 10, and 50 years of the lives of people that look like us. So, Chris, why don't you hop in and add a little bit more color to that? Wow, just put me on the spot. You, it was your idea. Actually, it was my idea. I'm sorry. Okay, Ray, my bad. <laughs> it was totally my idea. Well, everybody, Ray Ankrum. Then you should talk You should talk about it. No, nah, I'm good. You talk. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what we have said earlier today is that um, ed reform is in, a, in bad shape right now. And some would say that ed, ed reform might be dead. But even if that were true, can't hear. Can you hear me? Can we do a sound check? They can she hear. She told me to talk right into it. Okay. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? You might need to take it out. That's why I took it out. Do I need to do my Teddy Pendergrass voice for y'all? <laughs> do I need to sing? Uh, You'll never find. <laughs> as long as you live. <laughs> Is that what you uh, want to do? Yes, a little bit better. Thank you. Uh, someone who cares about you. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, brother. Jump back in. Anyways, we thought it would be really brave to put out a provocative statement. And the provocative statement would be hashtag education or ed reform is dead. And we thought that that would be provocative because nobody here for sure wants to hear that because we all believe in some degree of ed reform. But we have to agree that it's on its heels. It's been battered, it's been beaten up. The idea, the concept that we need to change and improve schools is not what it was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. It is kind of in trouble. But the one part of ed reform that is still standing is this part, to be very honest, the charter school part of ed reform. There are still people waking up every day, running schools, uh, um, trying to educate children. They have physical buildings. It's not theoretical. It's not like teacher evaluation or Common Core or state standards or many of the other things in ed reform that have been beaten up already. So I thought it would be really interesting to talk about this thing that I think is really important right now for, for the charter school people which is some of you guys are the last folks standing in the ed reform battle. The people who are running schools right now are some of the last people in ed reform standing 
And I don't think everybody's going to make it. I think that there's going to be a third of y'all who aren't going to make it. At all. At all. Not going to make it. You, you, you're going to blow out like a bad knee. You're not going to be there for the fight and the struggle and the battle. There's a third of y'all that are going to be like avid students on the bubble that with a little help, we could push you up and make you better. And a third of y'all are going to be true warriors for the cause, right? That's not a good diagnosis, but I like it because mm -hmm. we need, this is a time where fair weather friends and part-time reformers do need to go home, right? This is that moment where people who aren't truly down for the cause need to actually rethink their position within it. Mm -hmm. Now, is that being too sharp of, on the point or what? No, I, I think that that's actually a really good point. I know that, I know that these two got a lot of thoughts about that. Are y'all gonna sing first like I did? No, no. First of all, don't sing Teddy Penn. I'm from Philly. Don't sing Teddy Pendergrass in that way. All right. That was Blue Rose. <laughs> that was Blue Rose. That was not a good rendition of Teddy Pendergrass. Um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, you know, when we're talking about Ed Reform is dead, we're talking about like specific parts, right? Like, you know, Common Core is on his heels and, you know, uh, teacher evaluation in a lot of states are being repealed and, and things of that nature. Um, and while there are charter schools happening, I would say that if people are not vigilant, I think sometimes people got schools and they think it's cute. They're like, oh, I got all these cute kids and I'm helping out. And, and they're just like passive and, you know, just just happy. And like, why are we happy? Even if we have, you know, what percentage of kids go to charter schools in America? 10. 10 percent. And Is like how? 7 percent. Right. Yeah, like, 7%. how do you get happy and complacent? with 7% of students having an option or families having an option, 7%. And we are like celebrating and having parties and like that, to me, that's that's absolutely ridiculous. Like there, there's so much to be done. The, the fact that we are, you know, shucking and jiving and happy and partying for this small, tiny group of students having access is absolutely insane. Because I can tell you one thing, and especially when we look at the black community and what, they, what they're trying to get. If 7% of white families had access to school choice of their, of their wanting, they would not be celebrating. 7%, they'd be, we're talking about American Revolution Part Two, if that really happened. Mm -hmm. Ray? So, so the reason why I think Ed Reform is dead is because like, I don't feel like we have any fight left uh, besides the people that are in this room and besides maybe people that are in charter schools. Like, I, I don't I don't really hear good things coming in terms of like how we reform education. And so for me, I just want to hear some fresh ideas about how to get these black kids and these brown kids to where they need to be. And if we're going to say, you know, college is not the answer for everybody, then what is the answer? Like, we need to talk about what the answers are, because truth be told, I probably wouldn't have gone to college had I known how much debt I was going to get and be in. I probably would have been a plumber or, or electrician or something of that sort so that I could build wealth, but then not have the debt that I have in terms of having to pay it back. So, you know, those are all things that we need to talk about and we're going to talk about them today. Can we just add one more thing to just to term and we talk about this a lot in, in previous shows. The whole idea of ed reform, mm -hmm. right? And we talk about like education and the dire straits that it's been in ever since they halfway opened the door for black and brown kids to go. Because the door has never really been open to quality education. It's been like, you know, it's just a little crack. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, folks have slid into that. 
But the whole idea of ed reform, I see you, sister. Uh, the whole idea of ed reform, we talk about it, this analogy that uh, Stuart brought up last year. This idea of who talks about slavery reform and people think that's, that's a good idea. Like, I just want to reform slavery. Education has been, in our communities, at a state where it doesn't need reform. It needs, like, total revolution, reimagined, redone, not reform. Reform means we're eating around the edges. When we were little, we were all eating our grits, and we had to run to school. My mom was saying, I'm like, it's too hot to eat. She's like, eat around the edges, just a little bit on around, and you just eat around the edges, and it take you a whole hour to finish it, and I never got to finish because then it was time to go to school, right? And she's like, no, let's go. We got to go. I'm like, I didn't finish my food. That's that's what ed reform is like. We're eating around the edges, stuff not getting done, kids still being pushed out and dropping out and not having access. And we're, we we end up celebrating because we ate around the edges. That's what reform is. So right. I got a question. Is there is there sugar or salt and pepper on the grits? If you put oh sugar in your grits. You need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> First off, I like sugar on grits. So uh, I don't care you, what y'all got to say. And you, you need to leave. leave. All the way over. Just move over. Uh, That's once all again, good. six black hands coming North at you at a city near you. Let me. Nor, nor, normally, when we do this, I got a mute button. Uh, I don't have it today. But I wanted to ask a question. So, I mean, let's put this in a, in, in real perspective because I think this might split the room a little bit. All right. In this ed reform thing that we're talking about, for so long there has been a group of folks who can opt in and opt out. So. In being able to opt in and opt out, right? When you look at, when we talk about education reform and educating folks, there's a lot of people that work in charter schools that need to come out the closet. There's a lot of people that work in charter schools and they're getting attacked, they're attacking these institutions and people are, are, but to fit in at that moment, right? They'll just say, I'm an educator, but they won't proudly say where they're educating and what they're doing. And the reason why that's important is some people get to opt in and opt out while others don't have that option. So Nick Hanauer, as I say his name right, he's the billionaire guy that he wrote the article. He doesn't have a billion dollars. Whatever, bro. millionaire. He got more money than me. So he wrote the Atlantic article, and he came to this great revelation. He said that uh, it's not ed- better schools won't fix was wrong is there is actual economic inequality and in that moment right like i saw all these people on my timeline that are in this movement with me that were like snapping and like resharing and all this stuff i'm black i grew up poor like yeah i know it's an inequality issue i know income is an issue right but education for black and brown people in poverty and people living in poverty has always been a gateway, not the answer, but a gateway to get us to a better life. So pay attention to who's saying what and when they're saying it. Now, if that brother just don't want to be a part of this movement no more, that's fine. Like, you can say that. But you don't have to act like you had this revolution and, like, this revelation in your head, right, that, like, now I'm just smarter than everybody else and we've been misappropriating these funds and trying to save these kids' education ain't the way to do it. So I'm going to name an even bigger goal that I'm not going to touch and I get to be a hero while I really ain't did a damn thing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, when when we look at who is saying these things, when people say the stuff like kids don't need college, who are the people that's normally saying that? People with college degrees. They're normally white. 
and they normally have college degrees, and oh yeah, they normally have enough money that their kids have a safety net that if they can go into Europe for a year or two, figure out who they are and then come home. But guess what? The lady from Miss Becky from the from, from Full House Full is still House. paying five hundred thousand dollars to to get her kid into college. Right. The same college that it don't really matter if you go to, right? Like these radical binacities, these these false dichotomies that we allow people to make, and what has really been the worst for me, and I'm going to shut up for a second and give it back to them. You're never going to shut He's up. He's not going to shut up. I probably won't. He is not going to shut up. Is the way in which the education system is made up of 80% white folks, mostly women. And we got a union that's really strong and powerful. And we letting them bully black and brown education leaders around how to educate black and brown kids. And they want you to not be able to test and see who's doing well. So they can say, well, take the test away because those kids... The test ain't gonna tell us if they smart. No, I, I want my kid to be able to do math. I want my kid to be able to read. So you got these people that you sending your kids to that don't wanna check to see if they doing well, and we think it's okay to just drop our kids off in the hands of there, and oh yeah, we scared to fight for charter schools at the same time. That's a problem. So what side are you on? Are you a person that can opt in and out? Or are you a person that if air reform dies tomorrow, I don't get to divorce myself from my community? The people that look like me still are getting trash education, which when my people don't get their education and go to college, they go to jail. They die. So what are you fighting for? So, sir, you sound like a Baptist preacher right now. <laughs> so, That's amen, because that was a That's really good point. That yeah. was that hot sauce on, yeah. those, uh, on that grub earlier. Right. Well. Focus on the show. <laughs> 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 so how do you want us to respond to that? I mean, I, what one... I want the people in this room to really pick a side. Like, if ed reform dies, and that means that you just gonna quit and go do something else, which is your prerogative, that's cool. But don't wait, don't wait like three years. But do I wanna that know, I, no, no, I wanna know the people that, regardless of what it's called, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what's in vogue at the time, I wanna know the people that's gonna stand up for my community and not be afraid to get a little bit of bad press. We was reading Naeem Akbar earlier, and he was talking about the griots that was telling us about slavery and what was happening. And you know what they did to those truth tellers? They cut their tongues out. Has anybody offered to cut your tongue out? Has anybody offered to physically harm you? Or have they just made your day a little uncomfortable on Twitter? This is the happy portion of the show, just so you know. <laughs> this is the lighthearted part. I mean, it's when they cut your, your tongues out. Yeah, just telling you what happened. That's just history. But I mean, but what are y'all thoughts? What I mean, are your I thoughts think, on what I just said? I think that was Nick, Nick, the guy. Hanauer. 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 So, I mean, Brian Anderson um, down in Alabama talks a lot about this idea of proximity. And I could, you know, reading his, his article in Atlantic, it just showed one privilege and removal from you know the actual work that's being done the the actual pain that that families are in when you talk about like oh we're not going to pay attention to ed reform or i'm going to divert like take your money but just be quiet like don't talk about things that you don't know about don't talk we've always done like since when what black community has said oh school is the only thing i don't care if i ain't got no food no job you know my um mass incarceration in my community and only the school that's only white folks who were saying that who had a bunch of money saying we ain't gonna fix nothing else we're just gonna give you uh you know we're gonna fund your school in your neighborhood that has never been okay for us we've always said it is a holistic approach oppression 
oppression is holistic, that means the response to oppression is holistic. There's not a single aspect of racism. Racism just doesn't touch one aspect of, of people's lives. Racism permeates all the institutions that impact people, uh, the communities. And so for him to even think that we are not aware of that is, is absolutely, I mean, that's, that's arrogance. That's what that is, that's arrogance. That, that's what happens when you have money, though. I mean, when you, when you have money, you can wake up one day and say, like, I read a book yesterday, and I don't think it's income. I, I think it's income inequality now. I don't think it's education is the answer anymore. You can't get anymore. that from a book. That was his uh, guru. You know, his, he got some guru, some dude who came, did yoga with him, hot yoga, cold yoga, whatever. And, and like, so now you have a very rich person who can change on a dime like this, and downstream there are all these nonprofit workers whose lives depend on you not being flaky about what you invest in. And this is what happens in education and happens to us all the time, is that because of the way that the money works, we often are at the, we, we're at the whim of people who can wake up one morning and decide to take a different path. But this is what I'm tired of. It is possible for black children and brown children to succeed in school. How many believe that? Raise your hand if you believe black and brown kids can succeed in schools. It is possible for Raise your hand if you, I'm sorry, school, I'm, I need to cut you off. Raise, raise your hand if you believe black and brown kids can perform in all black schools with no white students. Oh. And raise your hand if you believe that our kids can pass the tests that they're not passing right now, the tests put before them. All right, so almost everybody here, and this is the true believers because this question I think separates people. Right. This is what I have a problem with. People who pitch, no, pitch non-educational interventions for educational problems are give people us, that I think should get out of education. Give right? us some examples, now, sir. Now, so let me give you an example. Our kids can't read and they can't do math. They can't read, they can't compute, and they're, and they're not thinking logically. It's not that they can't do it, we know that they can do it, but you propose integration as the answer, for instance, right? So until we have integrated schools, we can't expect the brains of black children to be elastic and be able to take in information and process it and do stuff with it, right? Let me ask you a question about that as a proposal, as an intervention. When are we going to have fully integrated schools in five years? Raise your hand if you think five years from now we're going to have fully integrated schools. Ten years. Ten years. Fifty years. Fifty years. So then what the hell are we waiting for? Okay, so one person thinks in 50 years. There you go. It seems like an auction, right? One person thinks in 50 years. What are we going to do for the kids until we have these fully integrated schools? Just wait, right? Wait for the schools. That's the other thing about income inequality, too. How many people think the economy is going to change from a capitalist system to a socialist system within the next five years? No. No one does? Do you think so? No. So if, if black kids can't learn until we fix income inequality or until we fix poverty or until we fix segregation, I just feel like you're throwing up a bunch of barriers because you can't teach. Mm. I'm serious. I honestly believe that you have a deficit in ability. You're out of ideas of how to reach children. So you need to throw up all kinds of phony barriers as a veil for your deficit in skills and ability. Eight Black Hands is a pro-teaching podcast. <laughs> Six of the black hands are pro-teachers. One of the black sets of black hands is pro-black education, right? 
If you are a teacher who can teach black children, I am pro you. If you run a black school, a brown school, or even a white school that educates the children in it, I am pro you, right? If you show up to school every day with the idea that our children have immeasurable uh, potential and unsurpassable worth, I am pro you. If you show up every day saying their parents aren't good, they're in poverty, they're hungry, even though we have an obesity problem, Uh, you know, you know that's two different wait, things. Wait, whoa! Right? It, I know you wasn't gonna let me get by yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, those are two hard stop, nutrition bro. and but well, that's a different podcast. But I just wanna, you, I can't let it's that the slide. same podcast for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you're on a new keto diet and you lost like fifty pounds. <laughs> Relax, bro. The world should go keto. <laughs> you plugging keto I'm on just, a podcast? I'll just well, listen. Somebody should. I am just saying I'm pro you if you believe all the right things. What we know from research is we keep hearing about the correlation between poverty and low performance, the correlation between a parent's education and their child's performance. Okay, that's good. Let's put that, that research on the table. But what do we do with the research that tells us that teachers in America look at our children differently than they look at other children? Mm-hmm. What do we do with that research? What do we do with the research that tells us that black children are walking into schools every day that aren't prepared to help them reach their highest potential? We do with that research that when they look at black kids, they actually see black kids as older, less, less intelligent, less uh, uh, gifted. Right. More violent. More violent. Worthy of pushing. Out. And older. That was my favorite one. They right. see our kids as older. Right. But that always confused me because even if the child looks older, it's still a child. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I think you're you're eight, but I think you're 13. So but I'm going to I'm going to impress you but, because but, you're 13. But that's the thing, like though. that, like but, that, but that's kids, crazy. No, but the no. kids that y'all serving are not, though. They're not children. Like everybody just watched the Central Park Five thing yeah. that when yeah. they see us with Ava DuVernay, like all those was babies mm-hmm. and they lived an adult's life. On some stuff that they didn't even necessarily do, right? Like we think that those whoa, 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 whoa. we think that those said they didn't necessarily education. do. They didn't do it, bro. What? So let's clear that up well, right no, now. No, no. You said they didn't. Well, language is important. They, so yeah. they did not do it. They were innocent. They didn't do that. The point that I'm making is, and you know the point that I'm trying to make, man. The point. No, is we don't. The same thing that <laughs> Ray. We can have this smoke after the show. <laughs> it's about to start. Y'all, 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 y'all can stay there. We you noticed we separated them during the uh, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, table. Right? We, this we, was on purpose. We we right by the boxing uh, ring, but um, but no. But what I'm saying is like. We are sending our kids into a place that does not love them, that is not educating them, that is blaming their parents, that is doing everything it can except for teach them. But yet and still, we got people that's been at this conference, that's in this room that when pressed, will not say that they are air reformers, that will not say that they believe in something different. So if you scared to stand up for kids amongst friendlies, what you gonna do when they get some real heat in front of them? What are we preparing kids to be able to do? Like, so it ain't just everybody else's fault that our kids have to grow up too fast. It's ours if we scared to even stand up and say what our vocation is. How many, how many of you guys are proud of working at charter schools? Raise your hand if you're proud. Raise your hand if you're pressed by someone that is against charter schools that you will still advocate for the kids that you work with. Wow, this is a true blue, true blue crowd. That's what's up. Well, I hopefully we'll see it all reflected on the Twitter. If you 
go to a black hands and like tweet where you at tweet what you're doing tweet like the success the, the support that you need right because the only way the big question that we wanted to ask is if this thing is dead or whatever the case is right but if we're going to continue in this fight to educate those that have not been educated for over a century like how are we going to do it differently how are we going to do it like are y'all connected to each other that if one of y'all are being attacked on one side of the country, there's a mob of you running up on the other side? Like, how do y'all stand up for each other? How do we stand up long enough that you can stand together and say, look, this system is broken and we need to fix it together and have enough decorum that you can go behind closed doors and fix the issues that you have with each other there, as opposed to letting it spill out into an already like shattered like union that we already have, right? Like how, how, how are we gonna move forward and do that? Because this is nice and this sounds good and it was great to be at the little turn up that y'all had last night or whatever. Did they turn up? A little bit. Really? A little bit. What did I, it look like? I heard there's a lot of people in there with no rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell them that. But, but, but what I'm saying is, right, like, we wanted this podcast to be an extension of you and what you needed. Because raise your hand if you need some political cover. Raise your hand if you can't really, if you feel like you can't say what you want to say. Why is it that black and brown people got to walk on eggshells when talking about black and brown kids to white people? Because there's something in there where we believe that our brilliance is dependent on proximity to whiteness, and it's not. It's not. And with the, I did, well, hold on it's one not, second. Hold on one second. It's not. Well, you know I'm not gonna argue with that point. Yeah, <laughs> you need to be near white people. Like, uh -huh. no one's gonna argue that like the problem with black education is you know black kids just don't have enough white people in their life. I think, yeah, right? I think a lot of people do actually. I think if you that's make true. an integration argument, that's, that's what true. you're arguing. That's if true. If you're saying that my that's kid true. can't learn unless yeah. I put them in a school with white bodies, you are saying that's true. That what we have is not good enough. I mean, imagine sitting your black child or brown child sitting them down and saying. Without white people in your life, you're gonna be doomed, right? That is the message that we're sending some people. But when you just said, we're afraid to like talk our talk to white people, you have to talk to your own people sometimes. Absolutely. I just wanna be real about it, right? Absolutely. All black people ain't with you <laughs> on what you doing either. And especially if they have their pension invested in, an, in a system that you are trying to interrupt and break up, right? Now you got my real. attention. We live in, we live in a <laughs> country where materialism yeah. is real, right? And we have people who have fought for a very long time and are very invested in a system. And I don't mean like figuratively invested in a system. No, I mean some figurative. literally vested in a system. And that's not an all bad thing. I just want to be real about this too. That's the way a lot of people made a life. But I think sometimes there's a way to be in a system and you join a system. And we have to remind ourselves sometimes that the same courts, the same police officers, the same state that is over incarcerating you, over policing you, over surveilling you, over like uh, criminalizing you in the courts and all that is the same institution that is offering you the education for your children. Now, I'm not saying that my family members and your family members who work in it are necessarily bad people, but just remember that there is a good reason for them to be uh, opposed to what you do. Be realistic about that, right? I actually think that you should be brave and you should stand out and you should stand up for what you believe in, but you also should be smart. You also should be smart. You don't have to fight every battle. Like how many people at Thanksgiving have that one family member they're not gonna argue with? Because <laughs> you're not gonna win. 
wow, there's only like three or four of them. Y'all got to come to my family. <laughs> you got to come to my Thanksgiving. It's just not worth it in some cases. You don't have to take on every fight, but you do have to take on some fights. When there's a, a in your city, in Oakland, ah, yeah. when there's a strike and you got charter school teachers coming out on a microphone saying, we're part of the problem. We work for billionaires, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, quit. When is it in education that people quit, but they stay in the job? Right? Like, when did that start being okay? What do y'all do with your colleagues that have that problem? That are not brave enough to stand on? And you two, you, you, you run Eight Black school. Hands is not an anti-union podcast. <laughs> Six Black Hands are totally in the bag for unions. Two Black Hands want you to remember that the intellectual development of black children is what we should put in the middle of everything. Not a union, not a system, not job, not people's pensions, which by the way are invested in private prisons and child detention centers. Let's not talk about that too, too much. New York just divested. Who, who divested? New York. After how many years and how many, how many incarcerated? Years? I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. We're progressive. How many years? There are educators, <laughs> there are educators in this country that are literally invested, invested in the school to prison pipeline. Right. Right. So like, I just want y'all to be real about that. But tweeting Black Lives Matter, <laughs> you know? Tweeting Black Lives Wearing Matter. Wearing a t-shirt. So speaking you know? of t-shirts, we got a t-shirt over here. What, we got a parents union t-shirt over here? Shout out to the plug. That's what's up. All right. Very nice. Uh oh. Um, Sharif, did you want to jump in there, brother? I saw you was trying to jump no, in. I, I mean, I think, I mean, it's so, it's so many things that are, um, you know, I think a part of it. But, you know, when we look at, I think a lot of times in these conversations, whether it's ed reform, whether it's union, the thing that I don't, and I, I'm just leaving the principalship, and, and Ray's also a, a, a principal. A CEO I am not a principal. A I am a superintendent. Oh, I'm a big dog. Uh, yes, he's a big dog. <laughs> my, my bad. My bad. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He corny. Don't give him no props. <laughs> but yeah. All right. The idea is like, you know, students, you know, like how often are people talking about whatever it is and the and the students are are lost in the conversations. And when we look at, you know, and we talk about like, you know, people who are just so invested in the system and they say, oh, don't tell me I'm, I'm part of status quo. But I'm like everything about your record, you're defending status quo and not kids. Right. For for people to, you know, complain about alternative certification programs, for example, for teachers, complain and complain and talk about, oh, this is the end of the world because we got all cert programs for teachers. At the same time, teachers will be with these institutions, these IHEs, these teacher colleges, for four plus years, come out and tell you, I wasn't prepared, they did not prepare me to teach urban kids. Well, they be, you know, code language, they, I'm not ready to teach black kids. I didn't spend a lot of money in this four-year institution, but I'm not ready. The fact that, for example, TFA, you know, people complain about them, if I was a dean of a college, I would shut my mouth because the fact that TFA can actually even all the research says at the least, whatever research is a whole bunch of different studies. At the least, they're no worse, no worse than someone who invested four years into your program to teach. That's the problem. It ain't TFA's the problem. The problem is that somebody else spent four years with you and they still not ready. So raise your hand if you think he just opened a can of worms. 
Oh, there's one. Oh, well. One. Good. One. Yeah, two. <laughs> That's the thing, because I just read something else about in another article about the guy talking about, oh, you know, TFA this, TFA this. Stop talking about, stop talking about TFA and fix the teacher colleges. Fix that. So if you were educated at the great Morgan State University, then you came out knowing how to teach. Hey, look, one of my best teachers at Master Charter Shoemaker Campus, Nadir Suleiman, Morgan State graduate, is amazing. All right, right now we got Freedom Schools in Philadelphia relaunch, revamping. One of the kids out of there, Morgan State, amazing. So like, no, and, and then, but that brings up a whole nother thing, like HBCUs and their role in being vanguards for education. All over the place. No, but no, I don't no. Care. But wait a second. So Morgan State is a HBCU. Wow, he's from Minnesota. He's from Minnesota. No, wait a second. I will stick with this for a second. I think he's making a point. So go ahead. <laughs> so there's a lot of black people at this school, and not a lot of white people. So they should shut it down because they're not integrated enough. They're not integrated. So how did this happen? <laughs> you mean you got all black people going to a school and they come out educated? I need to know more. Right. <laughs> I need to know more. How did how did this happen? <laughs> I feel I feel cheated on information. So there are historically black colleges where the majority of the people in them are black and they are proud to be there together going through a school and they come out educated. Can we show love and for our black universities, firm. please? Yeah. For our black institutions? Wow. We're not about to do this. Go. I also wow. attended Go ahead, the Ray. State University of Stony Brook, which is a top 50 school. I also Ray, attended you make your point. Teachers <laughs> College, which is the number one teacher education school in the country. So we're not about to, but I did, did go to Morgan State. And I do think it was a better school than all of them, so. Yeah. So I, I only bring up this point because I feel like there could be a, a K-12 analog to what we see in HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And I think that that black people for sure can start have the opportunity to think about a charter to me is like a driver's license. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that every driver is going to be good when you mm -hmm. give them that license. But I do want people to have the license to go out and start a school with a vision from day one of educating black children the way that Marva Collins did, the way that Lucy Craft Laney did, the way that Booker T. Washington did, the way that uh, Mary McLeod Bethune did. There has never been a time where education for black people has been easy. There's never been a time in American history where it was just hunky-dory and it was mm -hmm. easy. But I do know this much. We've ran out of time on the mainline system. I, I, I'm a person who believes that we need some new options. We right. need some new ideas. And giving people a charter to go out and try it. Now, I also want to say that some of y'all ain't good. You have to be self-reflective. You got to be self-reflective. A charter is like a license. It means you can drive, but it doesn't mean everybody's going to be a good driver. And if you're going to be real about this as a movement, you have to be able to say that in open rooms. And you're also going to have to follow it up with what do you do when some of y'all aren't good? Right. Some of them got the the general the general insurance with Shaq. <laughs> Stop it. Well, go, let's but, let Ray get in that, there because Ray, Ray, Ray's been waiting. So, Ray, go ahead and hop in, man. No, nah, I'm deferring to you, sir. Oh, uh, well, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about, right, is we were like looking at what's going to be the standard for how well kids are doing. So I live in Oakland, California. I'm very proud to be from Oakland. And You're not from Oakland. We were having a conversation. Ray just be talking. We were having a conversation. <laughs> and in that conversation, you know, Chris was like, 
you know, what happens to the kids of Oakland when all this is said and done? So let's say we get better graduation rates and all that stuff. Will those kids be able to actually live and own property in Oakland, California? No, and sir. And the answer is no. Right. So what what the hell type of education system, right, is not preparing kids that's from there to be able to even live there after they graduate from school? And so when we dig deeper into this, right, like so we did this report in Oakland and we put it out with our young people and it showed rising graduation rates. But in Oakland, we had California, we have this thing called A through G requirements, which is like the basic that you need just to apply to college. Those numbers cut in half. So you had schools where people were boasting 80% black graduation, but only 30% of the kids actually passed A through G, meaning that only 30% could even apply to college. What is there for those kids to do in that city, right? So when we talk about education and how well we're doing, what does the life look like? I'm spitting everywhere, I know, I'm sorry. What does the life look like for your kids afterwards though, right? Like think about where you teach. Think about where you teach. Four years after they leave your school, are they able to live in your city? Are they able to live on their own? Are they able to have a good job? Are they able to get married and raise a family? It, like, what's the yeah. purpose of all this stuff if we not making sure those things are okay? So I want to build on this point with an observation. Um, you got Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Austin, Minneapolis. I could keep naming progressive cities where they got all the progressive values. They got all the progressive leadership, everything from the progressive dog catcher up to the progressive mayor. Progressive got these cities on lock. In every single one of these cities, they have booming economies. They have condos popping up all over the place. Co coffee, hot yoga. I'm gonna keep messing with hot yoga because y'all do that too much. Listen, I have a question for those cities though. What happens to the, the kids in that city that actually are not coming out with the credentials that they're supposed to have? Because the one thing that all those cities have in common is they have terrible outcomes for kids of color. In some of the best, most college educated, richest, wealthiest, progressive strongholds of America, they are producing bad outcomes. San Francisco County is the wealthiest county in California. Their outcomes for black students are the worst in the state. It's the worst place to be a black student in the entire worst state. Worst in the entire California. state. They got, a, they got a progressive or liberal mayor, city council, school board. The works. It's the wealthiest place. Still bad outcomes. My question becomes, when you look at your own kids in cities like that, do you think they're going to be able to live the Seattle lifestyle when they get when they get older? Are they going to be able to live the San Jose lifestyle, the Portland lifestyle, really enjoy the city, be drinking the fancy coffee, popping open the, the Apple laptop and, you know, doing all that stuff? The answer is no. But where do they go if they can't? Do they evaporate? What happens year after year after year when we turn out crop after crop after crop of children that cities can't find any use for where do they go what happens with them do you know i so, do i do where I, do I, I used to actually i used to actually uh do bail interviewing for for um judges like in looking at the bail and the average uh year that students finish or these incarcerated youth finish was eighth grade so eighth grade was when they were when they finished the last year they've actually finished the school and they're, they're black, but it's not surprising, right? Like this, in all of these progressive cities that you talked about, in any 
a city that's not progressive. When do you see that these institutions and these people, I'm just saying both the institution as well as the individuals, when have you seen a platform that prioritize, absolutely prioritize with real policy, real action, real platforms of black and brown children? You don't see it, even in the progressive places. They talk about it, but when do you actually see it's implemented? Because if you saw where it was implemented, it would start with the schools. That's where you would see it initially. And from there, everything else would sprout out. But you don't see that for a reason, because they have never part of this so-called American dream. As Malcolm said, for most black kids, that American dream is American what? Nightmare. That's what the school experience is for a lot of these youth. That's why they're blocked out of the economic system. That's why they've never been prioritized from the beginning. This is all a consistency that, you know, sometimes we, we get happy because we feel like we made progress. Don't talk to me about progress till you show me your school. That's when I know if your city made progress or not. I don't want to see your baseball stadium. I don't want to see your, your rooftop uh, with grass growing off your rooftop. I don't want to see your all of the, uh, you know, your tree planting, your dog parks. Hot yoga. Your, hot, hot yoga. I don't want to see any of that. Show me nope. your schools. Nope. Show me your children. When they say, like, you know, in Kenya, when they ask the most important question, when they greet each other, they say, how are the children? That's their how are you doing. That's their, what you know, what's going on right. their question right. of how you're doing they say how are the children and so we ask ourselves that same question every time we see each other every time we wake up we say how are the children they're doing poorly you know why because we're doing poorly all right welcome to the independent practice portion of the podcast <laughs> that is when we come to y'all so that y'all can ask questions or that y'all can, it can be more interactive for you. We're not there yet? Not yet, brother. Oh, sorry. Make a statement, brother. <laughs> I'm just trying to get us someplace, sir. Brother, we trying to let you, we, we got them, brother. You are in the middle of a well-oiled machine. <laughs> exactly. Do it. Say it. I'm in the middle of a well-oiled machine. You are, man. Got, do you, you have are. a you have a point do you, you want to make? Nah, I'm good. Here's your point. See that? Just say that then. You're doing like Nick Hanawar. You know what I'm saying? This had, really is gonna be the epiphany. six. The six black. You know, it's really all good. Is. We taking we taking uh we taking auditions after this. Um, I do think, but well, we are about to wrap, so we can open it up to you all. But I think one thing that we wanted to that, that I really want to point out is I went to one of those education schools that you're talking about, right? And What's that's cool. What's cool? I went to San Francisco State. And in that ed, in that ed department, right where I got my doctorate degree, mm. it was clearly Doctor Cole. Give it, was, it up, round of applause for Doctor Cole. Give it up, Doctor Cole. Well, y'all about to take that right away after what I say. So <laughs> it was clearly built for the for the people that have been in there before, which is mostly uh, white women, right? And what it felt like as a black person in that program with the other black folks, and we happen to be the largest black cohort, but they hadn't. They, they didn't catch up to us yet, is it felt like the white folks had on lab coats and we was lab rats. Like, we was giving them the education. Like, they had never heard of Naeem Akbar. They hadn't brought in, like, you know, a, just a bunch of, like, black scholarly work, right, that showed us. And what they would do is they watered down the problems a lot. So instead of just saying, yo, this system is racist, right, they would say, no, you just had an implicit bias, right? Instead of like saying like, this did actual harm to these kids in this community over and over again, and we need to do something different. Everything was watered down and it was repositioned as if they were the only people that could fix it, right? So when you got that, right, and you got people that's like, I gotta save these black kids, these brown kids, right? But yet and still, you get afraid of me and the other black folks when we have, we just engage you in conversation in the friendliest environment you're gonna be in. 
when you're afraid in the friendliest environment you're going to be in, what happens when you're in the middle of Detroit with a kid that really is traumatized? Like, what is it that's happening, right? So the systems that we have had, all the things that you've been attacked, attacked for, none of it has really been built from the ground up in service of black and brown kids. But you all get to be the thing that stands in the middle. I don't care if you're at a charter school, a traditional school, a private school. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. But what I do care about is that the people in this room have to be powerful. And you have to be more powerful than what the status quo is at this moment. And that means that you can't be intimidated. It means you can't give in to bullies. It means that you can't let old white people like Diane Ravage run you off the reservation talking about black and brown kids when she would never send her kids to stand next to you. These people that's talking about this, that's talking about union stuff, they scared of your neighborhood. They afraid of you. They are, they are barbecue Becky. They are the people that's calling the police on you as soon as you start having fun. They the people that's jittery and that's worried. And I'm not saying we can't do this together, because we can. But you need to know if you're a person that has the privilege to opt in and out versus somebody that will never be able to opt out of this stuff, you need to know what your position is and how to be a good ally in those moments. And being a good ally in those moments is sometimes making sure that the people that can't opt out are in the positions to make decisions, that they have the space to mess up and do better. Because when it's a black school, you mess up in that first year, oh, we can't do black education. But you got a system that ain't never, that has never made sure that black and brown kids can read at a higher clip than 30%. That's right. That's, that's a problem, right? But now you got to look at yourself and ask, where do I stand in the gap and what does that look like and how do I do it? Yeah. So, I sir, mean, wait, 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 real quick. Did you just bring the smoke? Because I'm asking, because every time me and Chris bring the smoke, you got something to say. So did you just name I drop just, and I bring just, the smoke? I just, named, I just named the godmother of the education mob right now. The, of the Gambino education family. I just had to name that real quick. Woo! So, wow. I'm just, listen, man. I'm from, listen, I was born in Chicago and grew up in Oakland. It just doesn't compute that people from the hood is afraid of an old white lady on the computer. I just, I don't understand it. It really bothers me. That's the people that's going to run you off from educating your kids? Have, have you met her? <laughs> she got them hands, Chris. She's, you catch them hands. That's what's up. That's what's <laughs> up. That's what it is. Listen, this is this, this is what I want to say because I know we're gonna we're, we we want to hear from you a little bit now too, but this is what I want to say to you is we have two educators here, we have really three educators and a parent. That's the way I usually identify. Bro, you are an educator, but this is the way I identify. I'm not I'm not trained to be an educator. I don't run a school. I'm not in schools all the time. I have five kids I'm trying to get across the finish line. I've got two that I got through. The first one, I was I was really worried about it. I'm still a little worried about the, the rest of them. This is my life. I'm not alone. A lot of people go to bed every night with the same things I'm thinking about. Am I doing the right thing? Do I have them in the right place? Is this optimal for their development? Is this what's going to make them actual, actually reach their potential? It's the same fear everybody else has. I'm completely common in that way. But I, I look at people like you and it gives me this little bit of comfort and hope. There are people who are actually believing that the problem can be solved. There are people who are actually showing up every day who believe that their efforts can make a difference. There are people who are saying, I'm going to disrupt this thing that has been needed to be disrupted for a long time. That gives me the little bit of hope that I have, and it's, I don't have much hope, but I invest a lot of it in you all because I believe that there are educational interventions 
that could actually fix educational problems. And because I have five kids right now, I don't have time to wait for, for integrated schools. I don't have time to wait for the economy to change from capitalism to socialism. Actually, I don't want that to happen because I like my iPhone, right? I like my stuff, right? Am I wrong for that? No, I, uh, I feel you. I, I mean, I, 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 think it, I think it goes back to, you know, there's a certain segment of population that have always been promised something and never delivered. 40 acres and a mule sounds very similar to great education in a school. It's the same promise. It's the same promise. And it has not happened, and it will not happen until we make it happen. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand and without a fight. It's the same thing. So these same things that we, when we read about Frederick Douglass and what he said to the powers that be, what he said to the institutions, that all of that is still relevant today. All that is still relevant today. Because one of my favorite quotes that Frederick Douglass said was, the person, the education makes a man unfit to be a slave. And has America really stopped wanting black people to be enslaved? Have they really? I don't think so. The evidence shows that they have not. We've never really escaped, whether it was from through sharecropping, through mass incarceration that continues today, through um, poorly funded education. It has never stopped. So our job and whatever, and I think charter school is an important piece, but it is a part of a continuum of parents having self-determination about where, how they want their kids to be educated, where they want their kids to be educated. It's a continuum. My, my mom had five kids and between both parents, eight kids. We went to private school. We went to freedom schools, pan-African schools, home school. We even did overseas. We're expatriates for a little bit, went to school overseas. Like we, we had to, and traditional, as well as, as, you know, every other aspect of school because she was making a choice. My parents were making choices, like how they were going to define our education. That is a human right. Good water, clean education, access to, I'm sorry, clean um, air, access to good education. That is a human right. And so for folks that, you know, not understanding that, that means you can never let your guard down. Whether it was before, when we talked about Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, they didn't want black kids educated. Whether it was right before Brown versus Board, didn't want black kids educated. Right after Brown versus Board, didn't want black kids to be educated. That's a, that's a consistent theme. So when are we going to get it and understand it? So I want to make two points because you guys have made some amazing points here. Thank you, Ray. All right. Um, <laughs> the first point that I'm going to make is that education for black and brown students was uh, probably better pre-Brown. I said it. The second thing is, um, how does being a critical ally look for you? So I'm putting this on you, right? So regardless of if you're a black educator or a white educator or whatever, how can you be an ally in this work? How can you make sure that the kids that you're in front of every day are getting what they need? That's the question for you. All right, so with that, we wanted to open it up. Uh, I know it's loud and all that good stuff, so you might have to project. There's a microphone. So uh, if, if you will, uh, please ask a question. What I would say for the panel, all four of us don't have to answer every question so we can get the most people as we can. People that's asking a question, if you have it for a specific person, don't be shy. You can just ask that specific person. What's okay. our first question? All right, the first question is, I counted 
how many times my brothers, and these are my brothers. I'm Gwen Samuel from Connecticut, Connecticut parents, Julian. I counted how many times you said parents. See, I get we are educators in this room, but I think these educators need to know they're not in this game alone. Mm -hmm. These are babies that we're sending you. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, like, they're on the front line in the classroom, but without our babies, you don't got a classroom. Mm -hmm. So where do you, I mean, really see that old fuzzy stuff, which I don't know none of you do. Where do you see our role? Because you keep saying what they need to do, what they need to do alone without us in the room. And I'm going to be honest, you're not going to keep having conversations about my child without me in the conversation. All right, we can, so right? we can answer the question. It's all, and I'm counting. So you said it once. I love you, brother Smirk, maybe so, twice. So no, we'll answer the question. So, okay, so I'm with you, that. my brother. Appreciate you. Uh, we love you, Gwen. It's good to see you. So one of the things is, one, we came to it. It's a charter school conference. So we're talking to charter school people. But two, I think that right, right, I got I know, baby, I got you. Can I answer the question? Can I answer? All right. Two, uh, as somebody who does like community work and works with youth voice and parents voice. Right. Like that work is really important. And we know like. One of the things that I think folks do have to do is break down those barriers and bring parents into that work a little bit as well, like a lot more because you're right. They are in the room and they need to be, it's a whole bunch of ecosystem folks that need to be in there. CBOs need to be in there. Churches need to be in there. It's a lot because y'all can't do it by yourself. But at the same time, at this moment in time where ed reform is dead or whatever it is that we're kind of going off of, right? This is like a last ditch effort for a lot of stuff. It's starting with these charter caps and moratoriums and all that stuff. All these things to weaken your ability to build new schools. And when you come to renew your school, trying to take the access away from that. So this battle cry was more around how is this room going to react to the politics and how they're going to kind of step up. But that parent piece is really important and it does need to be done together. There's one other yeah, point. I, I would just say when, when, you, when I think about parent one, I don't, uh, three of us are parents and so like yes, we're educators I'm not a parent and, and we Don't are that on me. and we are parents at the same time but when I think about like the role of parents I, I think about you know the frustration that so many of them have and how you know we can support them everyone needs to support them but also think about this elementary school that I went to that was started by parents it was started by parents. So Nithal Musasa was a great, it wasn't like some other group who parachuted into the community and said, hey, we're going to save y'all. We're going to start a school. These were parents that said, you know what, we're going to give an alternative education for our, ch our own children as well as the children of our community. And that's, you know, and I, I would encourage, you know, like every opportunity families have, educators have, community activists have, start schools. Start schools from that were built from the ground up for black and brown children. Start with the school where students are gonna be culturally affirmed, that they're gonna be loved and educated. They're gonna be held to high standards and the educators in front of them are gonna hold themselves accountable for what those students are able to accomplish. So I would say families, Let's all, let's band together, start more schools. Flood the system, flood these schools, be a present, and don't, and just don't stop. Like, don't stop. You can never just turn your kid over. We all, you know, we all hear the horror stories. Malcolm X said, only a fool will turn their own children over to their enemy to be educated. And we got some enemies in some of these schools. So I, I just want to say something, because I think that this question comes up a lot of times and we don't do it justice. People say, people oftentimes say that parents are the first teachers, but I don't think they believe it. 
I, I actually just think it's something that people say, I don't believe y'all, right? <laughs> I actually, to be very honest with you, the reason I, I identify as a parent and not as an educator is I actually don't believe that we're in this together all the time. I actually believe some of your schools are actually hostile to parents. And, and Gwen, I, I thank you for answering this or asking this because as you know, I've had some problems with one of mine where it feels like when I talk to the school, they're talking to me about a bag of deficits, not my happy, gregarious, smart, funny child that I drop off at the school every day. When I talk to them, it's almost like a split personality. I don't know like who they're seeing when they talk to me about my child, right? As a bag of deficits. We are not in this together. To me, a parent is the closest thing to God when it comes to the education of their children, right? We, I don't want parents to be involved or educated or empowered. All of those things denote something I'm giving you, like I'm giving you the power or whatnot. No, parents should be sovereign, damn it. Parent sovereignty is what I fight for. I don't want parent power or any empowerment and all that stuff. I want parents in power. And that is different than parents empowered, right? Those are two different things. I am saying what I'm saying right now in response to this question, a room full of educators, because whether you look like me or not, I'm here to tell you not all your schools are getting this right. Some of y'all don't like parents. Some of y'all want to educate like kids, kids in spite of us as parents, right? And I hate to say it, that ain't a race-based thing. That ain't one kind of people that run schools like that. I have been a private school parent, a charter school parent, a traditional school parent, and a magnet school parent. The only thing that is left for me is homeschool, and I'm certain that that's the only one where my kid will get an absolute humane uh, education, but I'm still willing to invest in some of y'all, my kids. But answer this question as much as you guys can about parents. What are you doing to make sure that you really do put parents in the first place? Hi, um, my name is Ifeyan Wanako. I am a math teacher first um, and currently a co-founder of Stratford Preparatory Charter School for Boys in, Bron in the Bronx. Um, Mr. Cole, you mentioned um, where are these educators? Where are the people that are willing to teach children that look like you? And I think that there's this weird assumption with that statement that we don't exist. Like I said, I'm a math educator first and foremost, uh, special ed, and I've taught for multiple years. And there's this weird thing that we assume that we are unicorns, but we do exist. There are great teachers like myself who do great work, but my question to you all is, how do you use your platform to highlight us? Because if nobody sees me and nobody comes to watch what I do with kids and only the two people sitting next to me say that's magic, how do we spread that word? So how do you use your platform to put me out there to say this is a dope person that you should go watch and you should be like? So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 10 Black Hands. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we keep changing the number of hands. <laughs> right. It all it, it goes Was in that and out. You too. So, ladies and gentlemen, so, twelve black hands. <laughs> so, to answer your question, so I mean, one, I want to be clear. Like, we don't make that assumption. We actually know. Like, that's one of the things that we talk about, right? Is to make sure that y'all don't have to stand by yourself. So, we know that you are there. One of the things that we do try to do, and we always tell folks in rooms like this, if you want to get on the show, like if you have something that you want to highlight, let us know so we can kind of do that, right? And right now. We're actually trying to, after we get our stuff straight, we're trying to start other podcasts that actually lift up those voices in different ways. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, you should let us know. But I want to be very clear, 
for as many of you that are in there doing really good work and a good job, I see them, I know them, I go to their schools and I see them in mixed company and they act scared to say what they teach. They act scared to speak up and say like who they are or they wanna like, you know, play in the middle. I live in Oakland where we just had a strike and you had charter teachers that came out and struck against charter schools, right? To kind of be accepted. So I wanted to just say, that's not the assumption that we make and I appreciate the work that you and other black educators do, but I don't think that there's enough folks that are stepping out of that curtain and like standing with you when the heat comes. Cause we always see y'all getting punished by yourself and not having somebody to have your back while people jumping you. So that was my, that was my point. And I would just add that we, and we need far more um, black educators. You know, I, I launched the Fellowship Black Male Educators for Social Justice 2014, and just recently the Center for Black Educator Development, because we need more. Pennsylvania, for example, black teachers mirrors the, uh, the number in Minnesota. 96% of Pennsylvania's teachers are white. In Philadelphia, as black as Philadelphia is, as diverse as it, as it is, it used to be 40% of the public school teachers were black, 40%. Now it's down to 24%. So we need more of you entering the classrooms, entering the space, and that's one of the reasons why we launched Freedom Schools, to like really highlight and elevate our youth, you know, college students, high school students who are interested in education, interested in being the vanguards for our children mm -hmm. and doing that um, not only during the summer, but also year round. So we, we applaud you. We need more of you. So dear Miss Black teach, math teacher from the Bronx, I have a principal right here that you can talk to today if you want to move to Long Island. That's what, that's what I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought there was a brother up here that was next uh, on the mic. Yeah. Does Where somebody have the mic? I no, have it was, the it was mic. supposed to be this brother I right have here. The mic. Okay. Oh, right after. oh, it looks like Sarah okay. Carver. I want to say that I believe in black educators. I believe in black educators. But when are we going to address the schools that we sending our kids to where it's predominantly black and they're not treating our kids right? We got to talk about ourselves also mm -hmm. in this thing. And we're not talking about what we're not doing. Before school was out, we got a call to a school. And when we walked in this school, it was all black people in the office. And this baby, a first grader, was hogtied, handcuffed, hands and, and, and feet. So we got to talk about ourselves also in this fight also. So handcuffed, first grader. Oh, oh, we, and we, when we, I asked we why, the black lady stood up and told me she made the call. So we making a call for her not to come back to our community anymore. Right, right. Because we don't. As you should. First of all, we don't. We don't. Um, and th and thank you for that. And as, that's we, actually we, we sinful. the question though, because she was low. So she, uh, she's basically question. saying that we need to also talk about black educators. That just because you know you're black doesn't mean that you don't harbor anti-blackness practices and an anti-blackness mindset. That's right. And so she said, we need to make sure that we're talking about that and 100% agree. She said she went to a school, she had to advocate for a child that was hogged, an elementary school student that was hog-tied in the office. And when she demanded answers, why this child, why someone's little precious baby was hog-tied in the main office full of black educators, a black woman stood up and said, I made the call to do that. And so, you know, we're acknowledging that, yes, your blackness itself does not mean that you are a liberator. It does not mean you're either a liberator or an oppressor in this system. 
that's right. that school, they chose to be an oppressor of the system. They chose to be agents of oppression instead of agents of liberation for, for children. And that, unfortunately, absolutely, that happens a whole lot. And it, so it, thank it, you for, like, yeah. standing up and, and, and demanding that, that those educators are held accountable and not be a part of that school. And I, I just want to say the flip side of that is just because you're a white educator don't mean you can't teach either mm -hmm. and that you can't teach black children. Because I think sometimes when we, we talk so much about like we need more black educators, it's heard as across the board, white people can't teach and they can't teach our kids. You never want that to be the message, because honestly, if you visit enough classrooms like I have visited, you see a hot mess of different things happening, regardless of the race of the teachers. You really do. Your teacher could be any color and be fa fantastic or terrible. We're going to question here. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. My concern that I have, and it's, it's been a big concern of mine, is it the quote, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, everybody wants to do the best for their children. It's a, it's a big thing that we give our kids the best. But what happens when the village mm -hmm. is messed up? Mm -hmm. How do we fix the village? Because at some point, the village happens within the building, and then the village, the village doesn't extend outside the building anymore. And my thing is I want to be able to ring in the whole village, but our communities are messed up at the same time. How do we support them? Because I, I go back to what you said, that village inside that building was messed up. Where you hog tying a child. And when, when, when our parents wanted freedom, now it was a sense of urgency. And so we want to educate our children now. We want our communities to be right now when our communities are not right. How do we fix that? But this that's is going to be a, a real a great <laughs> question, sir. Eight black hands next episode. <laughs> well, I mean, and this, this okay. is, the, I'll give you a very unpopular answer to that, right? And I'm known for unpopular answers. But like when Sharif was talking about earlier about the like eating the grits around the, the edges and whatnot, there is a conversation we are not having as a village um, that extends outside of the schools about what our expectations are, not just for schools, but for our community and for us as parents and for the rearing of children and for the creating a safe, humane place for our children to grow up, right? There is a conversation that used to be had with a social system of people at all different levels. Charles has done a lot of work around churches with their doors shut, right, during the week, right? Yeah, you, everybody shows up on the weekend, but throughout the week, you have an institution that sits in the middle of, of a neighborhood maybe and isn't open to everybody. Mm -hmm. Children are on their own in a lot of ways right Absolutely. now. So if we want to talk about out of school time, what happens with our children out of school time broadly, that, that's a conversation we need to have and it's not going to be comfortable. Because some of the answers, every time we point a finger away, there's going to be several fingers pointing right back at us about, okay, I get what you're saying the system isn't doing, what the school isn't doing, what the teacher isn't doing, what the parent isn't doing. Right. Uh, but as a village, which you just said, we messing up. And like, I, like our yeah. social systems broke down years ago, right? Our kids are living in the middle of that chaos right. in many places. I want to add on to that too, Chris. I think, I mean, you know, a lot, like you said, a lot of work that I do is around, I don't, I don't work in a school anymore in the system. I, I do more community work. Can you, can you all hear me? Okay. Um, 
I don't work in that in that traditional spot anymore, but I tell our parents this all the time. Like, you got heat for the school and you should, but it's a lot of organizations around here that's getting a tax deduction to serve your kids as well, right? So what does that look like at that church? What does that look like at that boys club? What does that look, what are the mentors in your place kind of look like? And it's one of those things that we got to call ourselves out and kind of set each, each other up. Like, it's hard if you're a parent to go to every single meeting, right? But smart parents do a buddy up system. You know what I mean? Like, there are ways that you got to kind of build that village. Um, and, and I think that we should be also pushing for better things to come out of, like, the, the other people that's getting the same tax break that, that your school is getting. I want to piggyback just on really quickly on that point. In Minneapolis, we looked at two zip codes in Minneapolis. And in those two zip codes, there was $250 million that was going through that was child related through these two small zip codes. There was an entire nonprofit industrial complex that was turning in annual reports every year saying that they were curing things with our children that nothing was changing. Needle wasn't moving on anything. As a matter of fact, they'd come back every year and say the problem was getting worse so that they could re-up their money, right? But $250 million going through just two small zip codes. All right, next question. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I appreciate you all hosting this podcast as a conversation starter uh, for us to, to discuss. I'm wondering when we will have... So, Two, black men represent 2% within the educational field, and we're saying that we need more men of color to come and be a representation for our boys of color and girls of color uh, in schools. And white children. I am, and white children. Yes, absolutely. They, they need black educators, too. I, I am wondering when we will begin to have the very honest conversations around why men of color are leaving education um, and what we will do as educators to combat that because what I'm finding is it is not necessarily that they that they are, are quitting to find better jobs sometimes the, the the honest truth is we're ill prepared we we don't know content we there, there are a myriad of reasons and we're not willing to have those honest conversations so I'm my question to to the panel is what what are you doing in your specific networks or with the podcast as an avenue to say we have to build each other's capacity up in the way that it it truly moves academic achievement for scholars so this is a great question and Sharif can take this question head on because he does this work yeah so I, I would say one if you uh, look up fellowship BMEC um, you know we when I started that it was a retention um, and I haven't found that. Tell, tell them what it means. Like yeah, a lot of fellowship blackmail. So we, we started an organization, the Fellowship Blackmail Educators for Social Justice. And what, what we wanted to do, it was really a, ref, uh, a retention effort because these are young black male teachers and they were all like super uh, talented. So it, it was the opposite. It wasn't that they didn't know content or weren't prepared. They were leaving because they felt isolated. They felt alone. They felt like they um, were being pushed to be disciplinarians. They felt like they were having a caseload of kids that they never saw, but because they were the black man, they're like, hey, I got a problem down the hall with this kid. I know you don't teach him, but can you mentor them? And some of them, and we saw a thread also, there were some of these um, young black men who later found out that the same person who was always sending them kids to mentor ended up being their supervisor to give them feedback about how to manage a classroom when they couldn't manage it themselves. And so like, that's what we were seeing. 
And the other piece I would say as far as like why black men aren't, aren't entering, it was 17 of us that started. 17 black men and we were all intelligent. We were all like committed to our community. We all decided at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at once we graduated college to lift as we climb. Nary a single one of us had been approached to uh, become an educator. When we did our first survey, we asked our white colleagues, most of them female, when did they um, find out that they wanted to become educators? They said the average answer was third grade. Third grade. Someone tapped them on the shoulder and said, you'll be a great educator. For us, it was after we graduated college. So I think there's a whole lot of things. It's a complex issue. One, we're not, we're not approaching our young black men about doing it. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to relaunch freedom schools. And our freedom school model is college student, most of them tend, you know, happen to be black men. Each college student have two high school students who are classroom assistants, and they're teaching first, second, and third grade uh, students. Yeah, we got the yank, but uh, okay. but basically what he's saying is he's doing a lot of work around it, and that's the dude that you want to talk to. We only got time for two more questions, and that means one response. Wait, from, so I want to I want to respond to that. Okay, but we only got we gotta go. To yeah, the but question. I'm still responding though. <laughs> so. I, I I wrote a blog post you, called... You're taking time away from the crowd, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. I there thought I was taking go. time Thank from you. you. Next question. <laughs> no, put Hi, him I'm in Dominique detention. Ford. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Uh, I'm Dominique. I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm a charter founder of Montessori School. I have a question about um, when you guys are talking about progressive cities, I think Washington would be considered one of those. But how have you or do you have examples of where you've been able to hold some of the city officials accountable for what they're not doing for charter schools? I don't have a good example of it now, but the reason that I bring it up is because I do believe it's going to be a coming campaign. We cannot allow the political class of any city to not be on the hook for the educational outcomes of their city. We have too many places where you could run for mayor and never have to answer an education question. That is like ridiculous. That should never happen anywhere in the United States. You should not be able to run for anything in any office in any city and not have to encounter educational questions about your outcomes and to be on the hook for them. Next question. Well, thank you guys that stood with us even though this happy hour is about to happen. I appreciate you. We got one more question. All right, thank you. My name is Danisha. I'm from Memphis. And I don't have a question, more of a, a comment, a little nugget of advice. For those of you educators that are scared to speak out about any injustice or any equity that's going on in your classroom, one, go to church. Two, when you get to church, <laughs> on your way to that church, you call your parents yeah. that are in your schools and you tell them to meet you there and you give them that information because there's nothing, nothing more important than a powerful, a mad powerful parent can get things done before you can. So involve your parents. And that is the best way for us to go out. Thank you all so, so much for having thank us. Thank you, thank you, thank this you. This has been the A Black Hands Podcast. Yes, give them a round of applause, please. Time. Thank you so much. Again, great. You have been listening to the A Black Hands Podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.